Exodus chapter 20, we continue our study through the Ten Commandments. And the commandments that we are going through right now, these first few commandments are all about who God is and how we honor him and how we worship him and even about how we pattern our lives in a way to make sure that we are honoring our God all the time. The Ten Commandments are often broken into what's called two tablets. And we use that phrase because we know the story. Some of us have seen the movie uh, when Moses walks down the mountain and he has two stone tablets in his arms. And scripture tells us that the law, the Ten Commandments have been written on the front and on the back of each of these tablets. But oftentimes we sort of uh, break the two sets up, that we break the Ten Commandments up into two tablets to help us give a sense of what's going on. The first four tend to do with who God is and how we honor him. And the second six have to do with how we honor each other because of who God is. You see, God continues to reveal himself, the importance of worship, the importance of exclusivity, that he is the only one that we worship and that there are no other gods like him. Coming from a land full of deities and carved images and idols, Israel is learning something brand new about who is truly God. And it turns out it's new to human experience as well as God reveals himself as utterly different and completely holy and worthy. They're learning about this covenant relationship. All that God has done for him poured his power and grace and saving mercy out upon them. And now he wants them to hear his voice and obey his will and become his treasured possession. So we're learning this covenant relationship. This passage of scripture that we're going to deal with this morning is even going to use the phrase, God is a jealous God. That's how intense this is to him. So we read these today not just as a matter of history or the development of God's people in the Old Testament, but we read these as still belonging to us. Learning again who the one true God is, learning what kind of relationship he is commanding amongst his people. Who is this God? How many other gods are there out there? How can we or can we even accept other minor deities into our lives and divide our worship amongst several other things? Is God even attentive to our commitments? Does he pay attention to what's happening inside of our hearts and inside of our lives? So as we pay attention to these commandments, and we're going to spend time in the first three, a couple of minutes again on the first one, but then really on the second and the third commandments, we're going to look at it through this lens. First of all, God is. God is the one who exists, and he is the only God who exists. We're going to remind ourselves of the first commandment, that we should have no other God besides the one true God. God. And it's this foundational commitment and truth that lays the path for the rest of the commandments. So God is. And then the second commandment, we're going to understand it through the lens of God is spirit. Idolatry is forbidden in the second commandment. 
Egypt was full of pagan gods and idols. It is a land that is loaded with carved images of major deities and minor deities and pharaohs who believed that they were the sons and daughters of God. This is the land they come from. This is how we imagine ancient Egypt when we look at it. They're coming from a land full of carved idols and God in the middle of the desert said, I am so different, I forbid you to make a carved image of me and worship me. God is teaching them that there is nothing in creation that can represent him and that we worship. He is spirit, he is transcendent, and he is pure and holy. This is a brand new lesson for humanity. This God is not connected to this physical world somehow. He is the transcendent creator, God. So God is spirit. And then the third one that we're gonna deal with we're going to look at it through the lens of God is worthy. We should learn how to honor the name of the Lord our God. Learn how to hold his name in high esteem and learn how to use the name of God in ways that are worthy of his glory. So as the commandment tells us, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain, because God is worthy of honor. Well, let's read our passage this morning, Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse three. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water or under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands or to thousands of generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So we think again for a moment. This is where we finished last week. We had some important things to say about the first commandment. But I want to make sure that we are dialed in to this first thing. You shall have no other gods before me. This commandment grounds all of the others. There is this one true God. He's the only one who exists, and he is the only one that you and I should honor and worship and adore. If there are lots of gods out there, and they're all basically the same, some of them may be a little bit more powerful than others, and the one who saved Israel just happened to be a little bit more powerful than Egypt, then what he is doing is he's just jockeying for power and for attention with this group of people, but he doesn't really belong to this group of people over here. And over time, we'll see if the God of Israel really is up to the task. If that's the case, then God's just jockeying for power. But if there are no other gods, if there is only one true God, then when God commands this, really what he is doing is he is simply describing what is due him. It's not just that he exists and he's some kind of prime mover 
who started the universe up and then walked away and has no interaction with his people or with the universe whatsoever that is not the God of the Bible, the creator of all things involved in all things, the sustainer of all things, the keeper of his people, you shall have no other gods before me. So let's make sure we get this. God exists and nothing else that does exist can claim his place. God exists and nothing else that does exist can claim his place. Think of it like this. If you want to apply for the job of God, you have some boxes to check. Am I omnipotent? I literally know everything. Now, I'm not talking about you're 15 years old and you think you know everything. You literally know everything. Can you check that box? I'm omnipotent, omniscient. I'm omnipotent. I am all powerful. I have all possible power. I am holy, holy, holy. There is not a speck of unrighteousness in my character. You also have to check the box that says, I created everything. You have to check that box. Nothing that exists besides God can check any of those boxes. Friends, you and I can't. You and I together can't. The earth can't. Creation is not omniscient. Creation didn't create itself. Nothing that exists can take the place of God. I love how this passage in Isaiah 44, verse 6 puts it. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. And then this very concept is reinforced at the end of all things. In the book of Revelation, as John the Revelator is coming to terms with what he is beholding, one of the first things he hears, and as a matter of fact, one of the last things he hears in the book is this. Revelation 1, verse 8, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. You shall have no other gods before me. So when we worship other gods, when we neglect our faithfulness, to the one true God, we forsake him. We turn our back on him and what he is due. We begin to bend and break this first commandment. When we do that, we're not choosing one option among many possibilities. We're not deciding that, well, this God is just not for me. We're turning our backs on the only creator there is. We're turning our backs on the only Savior who can save us from our sins. We're turning our backs on him. So this commandment lays this foundation and allows the rest of them to flourish and to make sense as we begin to order our lives according to what God has commanded his people here. So we shall have, we must not have any other gods in our lives than the one true God. 
So then God continues like this. And again, it's critical, the way God talks about the second commandment, for us to understand the world that the ancient Israelites lived in, that they're gonna walk through in the wilderness, that they're gonna enter into the promised land, they are surrounded by carved idols. Everybody else treats their gods this way. So then God comes along and he's speaking on the top of the mountain and he says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water or under the earth. So in case you missed it, nothing, (laughs) nothing above you, beneath you, around you, that astounds you, that you're confused by, amazed by, frightened by, none of it. Don't make an image of me. You can't make an image of me. Don't make one. Don't worship it. Now, it's interesting. This is a rather detailed commandment. There are three of them in the 10 that uh, are a little bit more detailed. The one about the Sabbath is the longest of the 10 commandments. This is, if I remember correctly, the second longest of the 10 commandments. So this one is detailed. It's not just don't make a carved image of me and worship. It's don't make a carved image of this, 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 and this, and worship it because I'm a jealous God. And it is a, it's a detailed commandment because this is such a powerful temptation in the hearts of the ancient Israelites, and it is such a powerful temptation for you and for me. I cannot see God. I often cannot feel him the way I want to, so I will replace him with something else. That is just a temptation inside of every human heart. This is part of what sin does. They live in a world full of carved images and even rulers who consider themselves deities. We still live in a world that is frantically searching for false gods to save us. We have this sense that there is so much wrong, so we are ready to adore anyone who says, I can fix it all if you just do this. This is the temptation inside of the human heart. We are serial idolaters. The theologian John Calvin said, the human heart is an idol factory. If we're not careful, we're constantly making these things and worshiping them instead of the one true God. Moses, at the end of his life in the book of Deuteronomy, he sort of recaps all of this for his people. He reminds them of this, Deuteronomy chapter four, verses 15 and 16. Therefore, watch yourselves carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female. So the commandment is teaching and reiterating this utterly unique thing. God is spirit and holy and transcendent, and you cannot and should not make an image of him. So there is not any one thing that represents him. In their pagan world, the sun or the moon or the earth god might be the most powerful spirit amongst them. God says, none of that is who I am. 
You can't put any of that together and make it me as well. You can't worship a bull or a fish or an alligator and say this is who God truly is. And we continue to do this. We have to be very careful in our world and the value system of our culture. Friends, God is not nature. The environment is not God. The environment did not create you. The environment does not love you. The environment will not save you of your sins. The environment will not take you into eternity with Jesus Christ if you worship it. God is not nature. God is not the state. As much as the state promises to do X, Y, and Z for us, God is not the state. God is not your self. I'm allowed to just simply live the way I authentically want to live. Friends, that is a cul-de-sac of pain and destruction. You are not God. I am not God. None of those images work. So the Lord your God, he says, cannot and should not be reduced to any kind of created imagery or any kind of ideology. And anything or anyone who demands God-like commitment or loyalty is a false God and can never be worshiped by a Christian. Anyone who follows Jesus Christ, if there is something else in this world that demands of you the priorities, the time, the effort, the worship that belongs to God, you immediately know this is a false idol. I cannot worship it. It will not give me the meaning and the provision that it's promising. This is the one true God who does this. One of the best stories in my mind about how this plays out and what God expects of us comes out of the book of Daniel, and it's in Daniel chapter 3. And many of us may remember the the great big pieces of the story. King Nebuchadnezzar of of Babylon, he has had this dream previously. God has given him this dream of this great big idol that represented uh, the nations, the empires of the world, and the track of history, and how God himself would be the final and eternal king and kingdom. And so the way Nebuchadnezzar translates that dream is, well, I am God, and I am the eternal kingdom. So he has that dream in chapter 2, and then in chapter 3, what he does is he builds his own statue to himself. He gathers all of the leaders of his nation on this great big plane, and he said, as soon as the instruments start playing, everybody bows down and worships my idol. So they begin to play the instruments, and all of these Babylonians and all of these ambassadors and all of these people begin to physically bow down, which makes these three guys who refuse to bow stick out like sore thumbs. If you can imagine thousands of people flat on their faces and three guys stand there, we're not going to bow. So a bunch of people tell on them. They go to Nebuchadnezzar. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they refuse to bow. And Nebuchadnezzar, well, let's try it again. Everybody hits the ground, and those three guys just stand. The penalty for bowing, the penalty for not bowing down, is that we've got this furnace, and we're going to throw you alive into this furnace so that you burn to death in the middle of a fire. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are standing there, in a room with a furnace where they're supposed to die, 
Daniel chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. They say, listen, Nebuchadnezzar, our God is able to save us from this fire. But if he does not, we will not bow. We know that God saves them from the fire, but they didn't know that. Do you know what will happen to you if you refuse to bow to this culture's gods? My God is able to protect me. My God is able to provide. My God is able to save my life. But if he does not, I still will not bow to this world's gods. This is what God is commanding us. No other idols before me. No other gods before me. False gods are not only everywhere. They're liars. They're liars. Friends, this is important. False gods promise you the world and they take everything from you. The one true God demands everything from you and gives you his very life for all of eternity. This is important. False gods promise you everything and then they destroy you. Then they use you. They tear you to shreds and take everything from you. The one true God says, worship me and worship me alone and you will be my treasured possession. He demands everything of Phil, but he promises to give his life to his children for all of eternity. Some of you have been delivered from alcoholism and drug addiction. What did that alcohol and what did those drugs promise you? What did they promise you? What did they promise to fix? What did they promise to make you uh, uh, forget? What did they promise they would do for you? And yet, what did they in fact do? They absolutely tore your life to pieces. But they continue to promise and they keep on promising and they keep on promising. But all they do is destroy you. And Pastor Phil has been waiting to say this for several years now. So here we go. If you're smoking or taking pot, stop it. Stop it. There are better ways to live. There are better ways to deal with your issues. There are better ways to even deal with your medical issues. It promises you everything and it will destroy you. It will destroy you. I don't care what the state of Colorado says. It will destroy you. What does money promise you? You give your life over to the pursuit of money, what will be taken from you? Our current cultural attitude, our current cultural worldview, cultural Marxism, if we just get rid of the wrong kinds of people, we can hand you utopia on earth. All we have to do is shut up a bunch of the wrong kinds of peoples and we can give you everything that you want. Gender ideology. If you're just allowed to express yourself sexually however you feel like doing it, you will be free. It is a path to destruction. The things that we are doing medically to people right now, friends, are literally destroying them for the rest of their lives. They promise you freedom. They bring you nothing but death and pain. 
Friends, the road to human utopia is paved in lies and blood. It just is. And it's because it's a false God. And it will promise you the world all the time. And it will, in fact, destroy you. But the one true God is very different. God knows how false idols work. God knows how false gods do their thing. So the very next thing that God says this in, in this commandment is, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And idolatry will have awful consequences, and the love of God will have incredible consequences that can cascade through the generation. God is a jealous God. We hear that language through our vocabulary. So we need to make sure that we understand it through what God is intending to say because this idea actually happens several times through Scripture. What this means is that God takes care of us like we are his own. He is jealous for us and for our good. And that God then even commands exclusive relationship. Godly spouses are jealous of that relationship. To take care of their spouse as if that spouse is their only spouse. <laughs> and to require exclusive relationship because I am jealous for this relationship. This is what it means for God to be jealous toward his people. And then he says, when it comes to idolatry, that iniquity will be visited from generation to generation upon those who hate me, but my steadfast love will cascade through thousands of generations to those who love me. This is just true about God, whether we like it or not. God visits in both mercy and anger. A saving, holy, and just God has the right to do both of these things. And if we do not think God will judge sin, who do we think will judge sin? I mean, besides us. <laughs> who do we think has the right and the capacity to judge sin? The Puritan Thomas Watson in his book, The Ten Commandments, I loved this little sentence. Idolaters are enemies of their children. People who worship other gods and bring other things into their home and bring other things in their family besides the one true God. The picture is, is that family lifestyle, the priorities that are there in that circle of people is just going to be passed down from one to the next and from one to the next. That's the image that's being put across here in this passage of scripture. Lifestyle will be and can be passed from parent to child. So scripture says there are consequences, but God has mercy, right? If you're confused about this passage, I want to think as well, I want to give you these two passages, Deuteronomy 24, 16 and Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20, both explicitly say God does not hold children responsible for the sins of their parents, but what he is commanding his people is that your family, your context, your priorities, these things matter. These things really matter. Psalm 115, verses 4 through 8. Psalm 115 in this context, you should go home and read the entire chapter in the context of idolatry. 
But listen to this, I love it. Their idols are silver and gold, the works of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. They make no sound with their throat. Can we say anything else to say they're worthless? Those who make them become like them. So do all those who trust in them. We will become like them what we worship. God is a jealous God. I want my people to be like me. I want my people to live in the context of the spiritual family, the biological family, in the context of who I am. God is jealous because he loves us. And God shows steadfast love, this word for mercy in the Old Testament to those who love him and to those who keep his commandments. Scripture tells us, Micah chapter seven is very good on this. God delights in showing steadfast love. God wants to extend his mercy to his people. We know from scripture that God is slow to anger and ready to show mercy to a willing heart that is truly his. This is the God who demands my entire life, but will give us his, will give us all that we ever truly need. All the good things that are in life come in under God. Otherwise, these things become terrible tyrants if they are above God, if we push God into the corner and we take these good and wonderful things and we make them idols, they become tyrants. But if these good things are under God, they become the beauty and power that they are supposed to be. So as we read through these commandments, we must live as if God is the only God and is worthy, the only one worthy of our worship. We cannot substitute idols for God and turn other created things into our own gods and expect them to take care of us. Then we just cannot take God lightly. We can't take him lightly. This commandment about not taking the name of your Lord God in vain, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And there's just one more sort of just in case you missed the importance of this commandment phrase. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Here's how we want to think about this. God is worthy of holding the place of reverence and honor in our hearts and in our conversation. Our first inclination with this passage of Scripture is almost always to think of swearing the words that come out of our mouth, of uttering blasphemous thing or using God's name that is intended in a way to curse or to express anger. Now, this is certainly true about this passage of Scripture, but it's true for a couple of larger reasons. Friends, our vocabulary, it hurts to say this because I'm a human being. I'm a perfect person, just don't talk to Heather about what I really am like, okay? Other than that, never said or done anything wrong, right? But listen, my vocabulary exposes what is in my heart. 
It exposes what is in my brain. And it hurts to say that. It hurts to say that. Jesus himself said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth is going to speak. Have I used the name of God or the things of God in worthless, hateful, manipulative ways? This really is the misuse of God's name. The holy, righteous creator should never be a curse. It should never be an act of manipulation. But the reason this is true is that this, con, this, this, this concept is actually kind of broad. It's, it's important. There's a way of translating the Hebrew of this passage like this. You shall not lift the name of the Lord your God to worthlessness. To worthlessness. So we see this. When we justify worthless or evil things in the name of God, we break the third commandment. We cannot use God, we cannot use the word of God to justify sin. How often does this happen? The things in this world that are broken, the things in this world that want to have their way, for whatever reason, decide to use the name of Jesus or decide to use a couple of scriptures out of context or half of a scripture in a bizarre translation to say, see, abortion is fine with God. You see, the LGBTQ agenda is just fine with God. You shall not lift the name of the Lord your God to justify worthless and evil things. And the Lord will hold you responsible if you do, is what the commandment says. I find it interesting <laughs> that people who know Jesus the least put the most words in his mouth. Jesus believes this. Oh, does he? Where did he say that? Well, Jesus never said this was wrong, so it's got to be okay. Oh, really? Do you know anything else that Jesus said? The world is just fine with Jesus as long as you don't define who he truly is. The world's just fine with him as long as they can put whatever they want to inside of his mouth. And we have to be careful of that. And alongside that, friends, when we have religion on our lips and no faith in our hearts, we bear the name of God in a worthless fashion. We're carrying it around like words in our mouths and there's nothing inside of us that connects in faith or belief to Jesus Christ. Isaiah said it and Jesus quotes Isaiah a couple of times when Jesus says, their lips are near me, but their hearts are far from me. They say it over and over and over and over but Jesus knows their hearts have nothing to do with God, nothing to do with his Messiah, nothing to do with the Holy Spirit. And friends, I believe in our culture, I just do. I believe that that middle ground of being able to say all the right things and get away with it, I believe that gray area is just disappearing quickly. 
If you want to define Jesus however you want to define him, you can make him say whatever you want him to say. But if you want to take him seriously, actually understand what he says, you have two options. The first option is culture is right. Jesus is wrong about just about everything that he said, so I will reject him. The other option you have is the option that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego took. I will double down because he is the only one worth following, and he's right about everything. These are the options we have before us when we take Jesus seriously. So we shouldn't hold the name of God or use it in a worthless, light or evil fashion. Instead, we should pray what Jesus taught us to pray. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Jesus said, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's the positive take on the commandment. Don't take his name in vain. Jesus said, let's pray this that this is true here, that this is true inside of us, that this is true in a broad fashion. Let's pray that the name of God is holy, held in the high esteem, understood to be something powerful and right and good and glorious. Let's pray that the name of God is hallowed, that it's the opposite of worthless. It's full of worth. It's the opposite of light. It is weighty and full of truth and meaning. A couple of questions to leave us with as we work through these commandments. Is this true in my own heart? Is my own heart free from idols? These commandments belong to us. They belong to me. They're intended to guide and build a genuine and fruitful and beautiful relationship with God. But it means then that I need a certain degree of self-awareness that maybe I have not stopped to work on for a long time. What else in my life has told me that God is not nearly as important as he truly is? What else in my life is taking up my commitment, my time, my checkbook, my talent that is competing with God? Only you can answer that question. Only I can answer that question. But we have to because God has commanded that Phil can have no other gods before him that Phil cannot hold on to any other idol to provide purpose and meaning inside of his life but the one true God. Is this true inside of our hearts? I also want us to think, is this true inside of our church? I don't even yet mean, you know, the church in general, the church of Jesus Christ. I mean here physically, Living Hope Church, when we gather, are we here to lift up the name of God and of God alone? Because this belongs to all of us. This is something we do. None of us coast on the coattails of anybody else's relationship with Jesus Christ. So for the church to be a place where God is enthroned in his glory, it is something that we do together. We do not want to be a place of hollow religiosity or where Pharisees full of hypocrisy feel comfortable 
or where idolaters feel comfortable. I can come here and worship whatever God I want to, and all is good. The church of Jesus Christ can't be that kind of place. So this belongs to us. But then we're also forced, as we pray that prayer with Jesus Christ, to expand our imagination. Does the church at large, does the church in our world, in our culture, hold God in high esteem? How can we pray for our brothers and sisters? How can we pray for the other churches in town, the other pastors, the other individuals who attend church on a regular basis or whatever? How can we pray for them that they realize in those churches as well, worship God in God alone? Because that's how witness will be born to this world. We have nothing to give this world if we worship the same gods that they do. We have everything to offer this world if we worship the one true God. This is what the church is for. This is what we do when we hold the name of God in high esteem. Let's pray.